Hey guys, as you know, our world is going through an unprecedented time during the COVID-19 pandemic. To strike out this virus, we, as coaches, have partnered with Fred Hutch Research Institute, who is working on the front lines to stop the spread of COVID-19. Please consider donating to hashtag coaches versus COVID. And here's a word from Hutch. Your support for Fred Hutch is a strike against COVID-19 and a step toward a healthier world. Right now, Hutch scientists with expertise in infectious disease, immunology, public health, and data science are working urgently to speed up testing, track the spread of the virus in real time, and safely test new treatments and vaccines. Your contribution to Coaches vs. COVID will help expand this urgent work. Donate now at fredhutch.org slash coaches versus COVID. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. Today we have on Tracy Smith, head baseball coach at Arizona State University. Tracy was the 2013 National Coach of the Year, and he was hired as the fifth head coach in program history on June 24, 2014. Smith has established a reputation of evaluating and developing talent as more than 75 student-athletes since 2000 improved their stock in the Major League Baseball draft, including four who eventually became first-round picks after going undrafted out of high school. In 23 years as a head coach, Smith has seen 85 of his players selected in the Major League Baseball draft, including 78 draftees since 2000 and 35 in the first 10 rounds. On the show, we talk about his ecosystem of winning and the Arizona State culture. We go over how to establish clear expectations and communication with players and staff, and we also talk about what he looks for in recruits and how that sets the tone for culture on a daily basis. Here is Tracy Smith. With just giving us a little snapshot of, you know, how you got into coaching and, you know, what what led you to Arizona State. Well, the short answer to that is the slider, uh, because as a player, <laughs> as a player, I couldn't hit. So, um, honestly, the by accident though, it was after playing, uh, finished playing um, in '91, and I went back and got my master's degree. And my father-in-law was the AD uh, at a at a branch campus of Miami University, and. Everybody thinks my first coaching gig was baseball, but I was actually, a little trivia here, college basketball coach first. So it was kind of nice because I, I knew I wanted to be, because my undergrad education, I wanted to be in something that involved uh, being around sport, but truly uh, couldn't hit. So that forced me to make a career change and then kind of stumbled into the coaching piece. And then it ultimately started a baseball program literally from the ground up at Miami University of Middletown. That's how it all happened. And you went from cold winters of Indiana to now the nice warmness of Arizona State and uh, Tempe, Arizona. So that's that's nice. And so uh, talk to us about your just your daily routine, because I th- I think and we were talking about this just a minute ago. We're all trying to search for that optimal routine of okay, I want to feel productive. I want to really relax and make sure my priorities are in line. But I also want to learn and, and try and get ahead in this time. So 
take us through kind of a, a day in the life right now for you, and then we'll we'll get into some uh, just some program content. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the interesting, even asking that question, what's a normal routine? I don't, you know, there is no normal routine, you know, in today's world because every day creates a different challenge. But like you, you know, you you, you get up, you've got to deal with the circumstances that are in front of you. Um, we're on the lockdown orders as well as, as everyone else is, I would assume we'll be, we'll be getting back to normal, uh, not normal, but the new normal, uh, relatively soon, but get up, try to do the zoom things that, you know, and, and every day is a new piece of information, either at the university level or a conference level, and then really trying to assess that information and how that impacts And Probably the biggest thing, honestly, John, is just trying to figure out our roster moving forward because um, baseball, I think, is the most uniquely impacted with all of the legislation at the NCAA level, college baseball, because we don't know the draft yet. We don't know if it's sure. five rounds. We don't know if it's 10 rounds. And that truly has been occupying most of my day trying to figure that stuff out. So I try to get a workout in. Um, don't tell my strength coach, but I'm looking over here right now. I've swiped a bunch of stuff out of the weight room. You know, I'll take it back when all is finished. Uh, and, and then I got to play my call of duty, you know, call of duty at night. Nice. Um, uh, so, oh yeah, I, I get on there every, every, I'm almost embarrassed to say that, but got to have a little <laughs> bit of that. I've played two and a half years and now I'm picking that up again. But other than that, just, um, dealing with the issues that we're presented with and getting up and doing groundhog day again, all over again. And you're not kidding. And it's, it's a new day, a new challenge. And I was, I was telling you, I've got a, you know, a, a toddler right now who this morning we've already had busted head, bloody lip and uh, bloody nose. So that's, uh, and you said that that's about normal. And you've had, you know, you've had several kids, uh, a couple who are playing college football, right? So I've had, I've had three, I had three boys. Yeah. One that played college baseball for me, okay. uh, one that played college football and then one that's currently uh, playing college football for Arizona state. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, let's get into some different things uh, that, that you've gotten into and you've gotten, you obviously gotten a cool opportunity to build a program from the ground up and you've been at, at a couple of different stops. And the, I think the, the most curious thing that I have and the questions that I have for that are, you know, what did the vision look like whenever you decided to start at Arizona state? So you've gotten the opportunity to change jobs as a head coach, which some don't have the luxury of doing. And so they're thrust into this, this moment of, okay, now I'm a head coach at a major university. Now what? And so I think that that's a cool experience that you got to have because you were successful at some other stops as well. So you got to learn from those of what you would do different, but what did the vision look like for you whenever you started? And then kind of what were your first steps uh, to make sure that vision was put into place? Good question. Um, because I, I, I honestly, I thought Indiana university was it for me, you know, I, I'm from Indiana. I was born and raised in Indiana, spent a lot of my you know, time. So I wasn't looking, I mean, that was first and foremost. And when, uh, after the 2014 season, Arizona state called and I, outside of really playing here, I mean, I, of course I knew the Barry Bonds and Odom McDowell and, you know, all of the, the great players in the past, but I truly didn't know a lot about, I'd brought a Miami of Ohio team out here in a, in a regional one time. And, and I'd known coach Murphy just a little bit through competition, but other than that, I didn't know anybody didn't know anything. So 
uh, came out on the interview piece and was out, out here literally about 24 hours. Didn't even really spend a lot of time on campus, but and I don't know how much, you know, when you spend time out here and you look at your kind of, but to me, it's the baseball Mecca of the planet. And I instantly was like, you know what? It's, it's a new challenge time. So coming out of here, what I really, because I didn't spend a lot of time, I didn't have a lot of history. I didn't know people. Um, I think our immediate thing is when the boots hit the ground is that we wanted to assess the current situation. And, you know, and, you know, my, my expectations, I guess, um, where when I came, I'm like, okay, everybody that's here, everybody's on this roster aspires to be in the big leagues. I mean, that's, you know, I'm going to Arizona state. That's what's supposed to be. Wasn't quite like that, you know? And, and so I think just from a cultural standpoint, and as you alluded to, I mean, I've been through transition multiple times in my career. Um, I understand the, we, they, I mean, even though, you know, players are playing for you, there's always the kind of the, we, they, that you didn't bring me here, you know, so that, that transition piece um, was interesting. Um, but other than that, just really assessing what was going on, I think the unique challenge we had was, um, if you look at the history of Arizona State, the transition from coach to, of the new program was always that coach was leaving because Bobby Winkle's case, and recently, I, I don't know if you saw what Bobby Winkle's recently passed, you know, the architect of ASU baseball. He was leaving to go on to the major league program, and then Jim Brock tragically, you know, passed away. And so we were kind of taking the program in a different state, if you will. And, you know, sure. that's not an indictment of anybody that was here before me, but it was just a different circumstance coming in. So we wanted to assess, because when you talk, quote unquote, rebuild, of a program like Arizona state, that's not a real popular subject. Sure. And, uh, but that's kind of what, you know, that's kind of what we did. So we lay, we, we came in and did the same, the same principles, the same foundation, the same strategic analysis of current personnel. Where do we want to be? How do we need to get there um, with APR concerns, all that stuff. And then we rolled up our sleeves and went to work and, you know, the tough times too. Right. Yeah, it's and and you guys were were poised with a, some some really good players this year to to make a run and man I I can imagine how how tough that is and and as, as I'm sure all of us uh, can feel or can empathize with that a, a little bit and and it's uh it's frustrating but it, like you mentioned it, it's out of our control and and some different things that we all all we can do is is uh, move forward and and continue to get better uh, but from going from yeah. Indiana uh, to from the Midwest to basically West Coast ball, right? I mean, we, we talk about, and you hear that, and the first thing that I think about is pitching, defense, and small ball. And you guys had some mashers at Indiana. I mean, two that come to mind, obviously, Schwarber and Sam Travis, who I – oh, man, we, we need to talk off the air about some Sam Travis stories because I'm sure you have plenty of them. Uh, but hilarious. Dr. Chill. Dr. Chill. Oh, yeah, <laughs> he's something else. But you go, you went from that, and obviously you've had some bangers in the last couple of years. But did that dynamic change at all with the guys that you had to start recruiting? Did you have to, did you have to maneuver that? And I mean, obviously you had to to develop some ties in the area. But other than that, did the recruiting change for you at all? Well, I mean, you know, Ben. I think Ben Greenspan, who came out here and is currently on the staff and, you know, did a phenomenal staff, a uh, phenomenal job on staff in Indiana. Um, I, I still tell people like what he has done from a recruiting standpoint for us in a matter of 
uh, a short time because coming out here, he didn't have a West Coast contact base um, either. So, and this is kind of an, the nature of your question because we were, I mean, one of the things I think that they wanted, and I say they, Arizona State, is they wanted to be more offensive and we moved into Phoenix Municipal Stadium at that time. And I don't know if you recall the dimensions in Phoenix Municipal Stadium, but when we moved out, but it was huge. I mean, huge. And right. we still were recruiting with this mindset of we want to be offensive. We want to um, – I think the, even the Arizona States back in old Packer stadium were very intimidating, man. You get in there and get these big physical dudes and they're knocking balls all over with well, that first year. Mm-hmm. We come in there with the person that we have is it was warning track city. Mm-hmm. And um, so we put this plan in, interestingly enough, we're recruiting with the strategy of, de- of going out and finding big physical hitters because our mindset is like, we think we're going to be able to get that type of athlete consistently at Arizona state. Well, the park you're playing in, doesn't necessarily translate to that in terms of the distance of the fences. So at the same time, paralleling that plan is this idea that we're going to move these fences in because we're going to recruit to this park. We're going to, uh, how we're going to do this. Well, ultimately that finally came to fruition, um, you know, last year because uh, you know, we moved the fences in and the park's gorgeous. We lead the country in home runs and all of those things, but it kind of took some time, believe it or not, even to, um, allow that piece of the strategic planning to show up mm-hmm. and, you know, of course, Torkelson, you know, and, and others um, mm-hmm. really kind of help us uh, help validate kind of that strategy. I love that. But we like to hit. You're right. Well, I, 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 la- right. I laugh. I tell recruits all the time, we're going to be last in the Pac-12 and sack bunny. I'm telling you right now. So. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Well, let's talk about that. I had on Mike and uh, earlier this uh, this year, I think, uh, it's been a while. It seems like, you know, March has lasted forever, so that seems like forever ago. But uh, but anyway, so I, I had him on, and we, and we talked a little bit about the offense. But uh, from a from a program perspective, what are you guys doing to develop hitters? And you obviously have, have had a track record of that, um, and that's with several different staff members too. So what's your overall just approach to developing hitters uh, at Arizona State right now? Well, so back to when I finished playing, I think the, the, the best thing for me professionally that I've ever done was I, I attended scout school, you know, back in the early nineties. And, and it was a little different than it is currently, but I, I, I say that because I think it starts with, you've got to find talented kids. I mean, you've got to find kids that present a certain skill set that's going to allow them to develop. So like I've always been attracted to players, whether it be on the pitching side, hitting side or whatever, with a tremendously high ceiling. So they may not be having the results right now, but you see the physical attributes that are going to lend them to be, uh, that have the chance to be uh, a pretty special player. Well, now you throw in and you've, and I love that you call him Mike because I call him Mike too, but I get all kinds of flack from the wives around here because it's Michael, uh, you know, Michael early. Uh, so you throw in a guy like him and what we've been able to do, and this is and going again, going back to being at Arizona state. I love the fact that in the North, we always have this like crunch for time because a lot of times, mm-hmm. you know, we're practicing indoors and everything's like this. And I remember a long time ago going down to Miami, Florida, and we show up early and I'm walking around the park and I see Miami, Florida players are out there just in groups of four, bunting and just doing things at a very slow pace. And I remember at the time going, God, wouldn't that be cool 
to be able to develop your kids at that type of pace. Well, now fast forward to here, the system that we've implemented to hitting is a lot of quote unquote individual time where it's really slowed down. Um, you know, we're, we're bound by the care hours per NCA, but we write that in in a way that our hitting piece is done in a very, it's done very differently than I did in the Midwest. It's very individualized. Mike, Michael has a really good routine with right. the guys, but it's done in small groups, which allow the guys to me to really absorb, go through, practice, implement, feedback, uh, re-implement um, over an extended period of time to where they can do it at their own pace. And I think it's, you know, it would have been tough to do it in that setting at, at some of my former institutions. Sure. So good sure. players and a really good hitting coach. Right. Yeah. And I, I encourage, you know, guys uh, that are on the call, we're going to talk more culture and program building and things like that. And so if, if you're really interested in what Michael does with the hitters uh, and, and obviously with you too, uh, go back and listen to that episode. I thought he did a fantastic job and, and we've kept in, such, uh, kept in touch since. Uh, it's been really good and he does a great job. But what are some things that you do for, for culture building? So if we were going to walk in and, and see you guys and we're like, okay, this is, this is what a Sun Devil looks like. This is what I hope shows up. What are some different, different things that should stand out? Well, I mean, you know, it's going to sound corny, you know, so we're talking culture building. It's going to sound corny because that's one of the things that we identified that we wanted to really establish. Um, and culture to me is, is your culture. It may be different from that of another coach or, you know, whomever, and not to say one's right or wrong, but it's got to work for you. So as corny as it sounds, I mean, we really start with the, the kid and the family because I say this in recruiting all the time. It's very important to us that, and I say us as a program is like, what's that, you know, what's that message from home going to be, you know, is it, um, so we're very much aligned with like the, you know, in the recruiting process and keeping the, you know, assessing what the family situation is, because, you know, I mean, baseball is built around failure and what happens oftentimes when kids get to college and, they're going through their first fall. It's like, this is, you know, this is tough. This is miserable. So what, what, do they, what do they usually do? They pick up the phone, they call home and say, Hey, this is, you know, I, I want out of here, you know, or whatever. And so for us, if we can be consistent with what we're telling them on this end and what the, you know, the family is telling them on the other end is, Hey, dig your heels in. Because I think there's a lot of moving around when things don't work instantly. So we work really hard. That's where I think Ben Greenspan has done a fantastic job of really identifying kids and families that buy into what we're trying to do and understand that it's not going to happen overnight. So um, that, so what does it look like? It looks like a kid, a physically talented kid. Um, but also I say, you take a kid that's physically gifted, but has a really, really good coachable spirit. And a willingness to adapt and change, um, I think uh, I think you've really got something there. So when you when you one of the big things and I say is the most underrated skill of players that no one ever talks about is aptitude. You know because we're we're going to ask kids to make changes. We're going to ask them to do different things if necessary. And a kid that's open to that because we're not trying to make you worse. We're trying to make you better. So I think we've done a really good job of establishing that piece that we're here to make you better. And now 
when you have that led organically from your players that have gone through the Torkelsons of the world, the Workmans of the world, and all those guys that, are, that have had success, and now they can take those young guys and um, you know reinforce that philosophy. Now you've got a program culture that um, you know that doesn't happen overnight. You mentioned Ben uh, Greenspan. He's been with you for a while, right? Yeah, we were talking about that a while ago, and he says, "I don't know, over over ten years," and it shocked me because I still think, wow. remember him as a player. But uh, yeah, he's been we've been together for a long time. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, our hitting coordinator was uh, mentioning that that he's a big fan of his. So obviously, he's done a great job with you, and 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 you've uh, you've kept him around for a reason. But what what exactly does he does he do with the program? He, he's our, he works with the catchers and, but he's our recruiting coordinator, associate head coach, right. um, okay. works with our catchers and, uh, you know, and, you know, helps Mike on the hitting side as well. I love that. One thing that, that Mike, that stood out to me because it's one, when I started asking the same questions, uh, to different people, there's some things that stand out and I'm like, okay, I've heard that before. And, and there was one thing that Michael said this fall. And I think I asked him the same question about just the culture that, that he's looking for. And he, and he goes, we recruit baseball players. Like we recruit guys that absolutely love baseball. And it, it sounded so simple and so profound, but I just, I really like that. Like I was like, I'd never heard that before. Like we love to recruit baseball players. Can you expand on that? Like how do you identify that on a field? Well, I mean, it, it's it, you learn a lot to me by just watching how a guy goes about his business, you know, how he plays and, you know, how he carries himself. Um, before the game, during the game, after the game, and then that's where you you dig into um, the homework part of it and talking to the coaches and the people that know you know know him at a more intimate level than what we're going to see in a in a two and a half hour baseball game. So you know, what does a baseball player look like? Um, I don't know. I think we all have have different attributes to that, but we all know it when we see it. You know, it's like there's a base, you know that guy's a baseball player. So. Um, right. And I think that comes in many forms, you know, many ways, um, different shapes and sizes, because I look at like our team right now, we've got, uh, you know, certainly Torkelson, who's doing what he's doing, um, did what he did. Gage Workman's getting a lot of, you know, attention. Alika Williams going to be probably a first round shortstop. The guy that nobody talks about in that level is Drew Swift. And I don't know if you've ever seen us play. Um, to a great extent, I'm talking to people out there, but when you watch, so that infield, that infield that goes around there, you're talking about three of the four are probably going to go in the top, no later than the top two rounds. But the one guy they don't talk about is Drew Swift. And he's the one too. And that this is nothing against the other guys because they're all baseball players too. But I look at Drew Swift and I'll be like, that dude's a baseball player. And so again, I don't know what it is, but you know it when you see it. No doubt. And that's something that I've wondered you know, especially at your level, is that something that we can teach? And I'm sure to a certain extent you can, but it's surely a whole lot easier to recruit guys that are like that. Well, you do, but it still goes back to like, I'm a big believer in the culture piece. And, you know, this is a very timely conversation because, you know, and I'm always one that like, I don't dodge the conversation, you know, the tough, I always like to talk about the elephant in the room and a little bit of the elephant in the room with with Arizona State and you know you could talk about us and you know our staff in particular we came in and we struggled a couple seasons 
you know, and, and struggled at a, at a level that's never on the field has never happened at Arizona state, but all of that was within mind to build the culture, get the right talent in here to build something for sustainable success. So back to that piece of culture, why that's so important, why we didn't go to, you know, no offense, but why we didn't go the junior college route is because we wanted to get guys in the program that were going to be here for an extended period of time. So then back to your, I think you can get baseball players, but if they come into a bad culture, a bad climate, a bad locker room, they're going to, a lot mm-hmm. of them are going to emulate what they see. Sure. So when you start getting the, the corner turned of, you see Spencer Torkelson out there who's the greatest, well, probably one of the best amateur players on the planet right now, but he's also a really hard worker. Tell me that doesn't translate to your young guys that are coming in the program. And, and that's going to help you two, three, four years down the road as well. So is that something that he always had, or is that something that he learned from the guys that came before him? Torque? Mm-hmm. Or, or, yeah. Um, I would say he, he he's, you know, I would say there's a piece of that that's probably both. Okay. You know, I, I, I was talking to my brother-in-law. I've got a nephew that's going through the recruiting process on, on the football side. We're talking yesterday. I said the biggest thing that, that I think um, – you know, if, if I'm, if I'm evaluating a player, this is just me at Arizona state or any coach and anything, or even, you know what, it could even be an employer. Mm-hmm. We can, we can pretty much look at that player and go, you know what, he's going to be good in this, 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 and this, but what we can't do, none of us can do is assess how that player is going to react or respond when they're in an environment where people are as good or better than they are. That's the trick. You know, that's why the pyramid to me, that's why the pyramid goes like this is, Everybody who comes to Arizona State is really good and good enough to play here or we wouldn't have recruited them. But why does it, you know, why does it continue to go like this to get to the top? Well, then it becomes that coachable spirit, that willing to make changes, the the team attitude, you know, those types of things. And so I think, yes, you got to be good. There's got to be stuff you bring to the program on the front end. But I also think you learn some of that stuff along the way, too, because your environment's different now. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and so I, I told you I was doing a little bit of homework by asking Michael and, and Sean Cashman some different questions that I think to make a good conversation, I need to know a little bit about the guest. And, and no, there's no better way to do that than ask people who have actually worked with, with you and, and to get to, to know you a little bit better and to see you on, on an everyday basis. And, and he said you did a great job of making sure you had your hand in every decision that was made but you had clear delegation and you did a great job with that, like uh, delegating and, and having, having clear responsibilities for your staff. And I know for the head coaches out there, that's something that comes up a lot is, is how do I, how do I delegate better? And as a, as a, an assistant coach or, or someone that's not in charge of other coaches, I like feed on giving, getting given responsibility and then running with that. Like I, I think that's the ultimate like compliment whenever you can give someone a little bit more responsibility so walk us through just your process on that. And then is that something that you've learned? Uh, because me thinking if I was a head coach 10 years ago, I would have wanted to do everything. And I, I'm sure we all kind of default to that at some point in time too. But just kind of walk us through your thought process behind that and how you have gotten your assistants to say, hey, he's good at that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big question, but I'll um, – so we developed really a business plan. I mean, I know that sounds corny, but I, I find a lot of correlation between businesses and sports organizations. So when I say we've developed a business plan, I, I wish I had it here. 
I probably have it in a folder at the inside, excuse me, but we legitimately have a business plan. I've worked with um, a gentleman who actually, uh, that's what he does for a living all over the world. One of the leading experts in working with CEOs of major corporations all over the planet. And we became, we became friends and legitimately through a, um, a, you know, well over a six month process, we put pen to paper and it was one of the coolest and best things I've ever done in my professional life because I was doing a lot of those things innately, if you will, the delegation stuff, the stuff you're talking about. But there were still these things that I thought our, our organization could be more efficient. And the word that he uses a lot is like drag. So, you know, what is the drag on your organization? So what he forces you to do and uh, what we all think we do, but to go through every element of your program, whether it be alumni, ticket sales, grounds, staff, president, uh, everything, and say, okay, where, where do they help you in the cause of winning? Do they, are they, and there's a scale of one to 10 and zero being neutral. Are they a drag on the organization? In other words, are, are they in the negative? Are mm -hmm. they neutral or they give you a competitive advantage? So literally, and this was over, like I said, months, I went through our organization and analyzed and assessed every single one of those, every single one of those. And at the end, now some, you may only try to get to neutral. Some, you may try to make a competitive advantage. But what you find is you find where you're putting your time in, you as, a, as the head coach, the CEO, mm -hmm and where you could be more effective by either delegating or having other people or more specifically, this was the best thing that I've ever done is there's this thing you call jobs to be done. So once you go to all of those, whether it be your assistant coach or whatever, each one of you in your organization or in your ecosystem of winning, we call it has a thousand things they do in their job. But I, as the baseball coach at Arizona state, I need you, Jonathan, to do three things, jobs to be done, these three things, if you can do these three things for us, it gives us the best chance to keep our organization going and not create drag. So then literally mm -hmm. going around and meeting with each one of those different entities and explaining that. So um, what it does to me, it gives the autonomy because I know is like you said, I like it when, you know, when I was assistant, I mean, I like to feel like I was doing something. So it gives you a direct, um, direct responsibilities, but it also gives accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, that, hey, I need these things to be done if these things aren't being done. And I don't tell you, like, sure, Cash or Mike, I don't tell guys how to do it mm -hmm. um, because I think that's the fun in it. It's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. But I think you have to be clear in your directives and then you have to hold people accountable for what they're doing. And that whole business model, that business plan, I'll show it to you sometime offline, I think is really cool. Okay. But it's really helped, I think, the efficiency of our organization. And, and to give people in the organization clear directives on what to do. No, I think that, uh, long answer, but no, it's a fantastic answer. And for me, uh, if I was working for you, I would love that because I, I want to know what I need to do to accomplish whatever task that you're going to give me rather than looking around and going, Hey, this needs to be done. Am I supposed to do that? Are you supposed to do that? Who's supposed to do that? And then it causes confusion, which it may or may not get done to the level that you want or at all. And so I, I, I really like that, that answer. And, and it's just, uh, like you said, clarity of purpose and, and, uh, what did you call it? An ecosystem of winning? That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'll like show it. it's a, it, you'll, you'll, you'll like, and, and it's cool because we laid this thing out 
um, years ago and really put pen to paper. And we actually talk about it in recruiting and show, and it is our, honestly, it's our, it's our business plan. It's our, Mm -hmm. it's our business plan of winning at Arizona state. And, um, it's fun to see when it's, you know, it comes together, you know, because it, it makes it very directive and back to the accountability. We're also, I mean, I'm also accountable too. So, sure. um, so it's pretty cool. I'll show it to you sometime. Cool. Do you, do you hire based on the best candidate and their strengths or do you hire based on what roles that you needed filled? Because I, I, again, as a head coach, I'm sure, and especially at a smaller college, you probably were able to do a lot of different areas. And so you've been, you know, you, you've had the ability to adapt. Uh, but just what's your thought process behind that? Are you like, hey, I, I would just want to hire the best coach in the country that does this because I know I can't do that well? Or do you, or do you just, or you're like, see this guy and you're like, I, I want the best coach in the country because he can make players better. Good question. Um, go back to, you probably hear me defer like to my father-in-law a lot, who was a long, like I said, a long time athletic director. And I've always kind of subscribed to this philosophy is you hire good people because you can teach them to do anything. You know, I mean, that's the part for me. It's like, you want to have a good person in that position because I mean, I've had the opportunity over the course of my, you know, career to make high and I've made good hires and I've made bad hires. And the one common denominator with the bad hire is it's, 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 it's goes back to the person. It doesn't go back to their Mm -hmm. knowledge of the the sport. You know, the guy could be the greatest hitting coach or the greatest pitching coach or whatever in the world. But if they don't get along, you know, staff Mm -hmm. cohesion or they they can't communicate that effectively to, or it's, or it's a, a giant ego that it's about them. And, because my big thing in hiring is, and I tell guys this, is like, look, man, I don't care who gets the credit as long as we have team success. And um, if I go back to my when, – when things have not gone right on the staff, it's like where people get real territorial. Like, I, I don't like that. Like, I don't – you know, just because Michael Early is – and he'll tell you, you know, we have a staff meeting. If he observes something on the pitching side or Ben sees something that Mike's maybe not doing in the hitting, it's open dialogue in that setting. And if guys wrap their arms around and get real, real territorial, I have a problem ego. with that. It's ego. So I like to have guys that, um, that are good, good people, certainly knowledgeable, but are also willing to learn and take new ideas and throw it all, throw all that aside for the good of the team, period. Well, and you've had to do that over your career, I'm assuming, uh, adapting to, you know, we hear kids, kids these days all the time, but I, mean, I think that's every generation that looks past on the upcoming generation, but you've had to be adaptable in, in your career. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. I mean, I play as a player. I mean, I was a, you know, what I was saying, I was a, I was a two way. I got drafted as a, let's see, I got drafted as a pitcher, ended up a position player. So I played two, you know, two-way player my entire career collegiately and professionally but it was awesome for me from a professional coaching standpoint because I got to work with a lot of really outstanding coaches over the years in all Mm -hmm. aspects of the game but yeah you just kind of chip in and and I've reassigned even on my staff I have reassigned um, guys responsibilities based on where I think their maximum contribution to the team can be not what necessarily they think is best for their you know personal gain or whatever but hey this makes us better and that evolves and changes from year to year honestly Mm -hmm. i like that based on your personnel 
Right. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and again, you're getting, you're giving the opportunity for those coaches to own their career. And, and I, I think that that's something that we as coaches are trying to do a better job of is getting players to own their career, because regardless of if they're an amateur, uh, if, if they're in college, if they're professional, that the, the players that are easiest to coach are the ones that have that one, they get, we get buy-in from, but also that ha- they have a, a process for the things that they want to do and, and do well. And then we just help them along because we don't have to sit there and motivate them all the time. So how do we, how do we do a better job? And, and you mentioned that Michael likes to do the small groups in the fall, which I think is a, is a great idea, but how do we do, how do we get players to be their own best coach? Well, I think it's, it's interesting because I, I it's almost, I, I look at an analogy of like a team rules thing. Like everywhere I go, you know, there's this thing where you, Hey, do you have your list, you know, of team rules? I'm like, I don't have team rules. I have team standards. Um, and the team standards are something we live by and model every single day. I think it's creating that type of routine um, and work ethic every day that they're, they come in and this is what's expected here. We have a saying in our program, um, just with, with regard to guys of, you know, we're not gonna wait for you. So you're going to either figure it out by watching what, you know, these other people, you know, our standards are here. You may think you're working hard, but we're not doing this. You're going to have to do this. And I think when they do that over time, they do it consistently. They do it day in and day out. Um, they're going to be prepared when they go on to the next level. When you were talking about that, it just maybe I, I probably didn't do an effective job of answering the question earlier. What does an ASU baseball player look like? What, what, what I am probably most proud of, of of the programs, whether it's Miami, Ohio, Indiana, or here, is I think we do a really, really good job of getting guys to, as you said, own their own skill because that's reality. As you know, that's reality when you take the next step. You know, everyone mm-hmm. becomes so dependent on a, quote, coach. Well, right. in minor league ball, as you're progressing through the system, that coach could be five different people. Mm-hmm. in three or four years or, or even less. So you better figure out what works for you, understand your swing, understand your mechanics or whatever, and take ownership of that. So I think we do a really good job of that. And when we send guys off in the pro ball, you know, I always say that you know, our guys are like, hey, man, check it out. You're going to get out there and you're going to see, um, you know, one, why all this hard work has been worth it. Mm-hmm. But you're going to see guys that are going to blow your mind. That you're going to be like, gosh, why is that guy not working hard or, why doesn't he do this when it's going to seem like second nature to you? Because you've done it every single mm-hmm. day of your career when you're here. Sure. So we just sure, try to right. create that culture. No, that's great. And uh, again, if we can make them their own best hitting coach, then then we can do do the fun stuff rather than the constant berating and well, I guess not berating. That's a bad word to use, but just the the constant like poking them with a stick, trying to get them to move along, and then we can. Uh, I think that's what makes really good teams is when you have you you have enough really good players that are owning themselves and their careers and they take ownership of the entire team. Right. And I think that's what we all want. But, but do you see how everything that we talked about is like this? It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's like interrelated because you just said it. It's like, you can't really get maximized development until you can actually just focus on development. So if you're, if you're having to, as a coach, focus on and take a lot of time on character issues or discipline issues, or, mm-hmm. Hey man, you know, you got to get better off field habits because it impacts you in this way. If you're mm-hmm. constantly dealing with that stuff, then you tell me how you can maximize your ability. So back to the, why do we, why do we go to an extensive level of trying to recruit the right character 
to Arizona State for those reasons alone, because we want to go another state. It's like, hey, man, I just want to, I just want to coach baseball. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to help you in base, you know, and understanding we're going to have to deal with life things and all those, sure. you know, situations that present itself. But if we can just focus on baseball for the most part, mm-hmm. it's going to give you your best chance to develop and continue and hopefully have a long career in this thing. I love that. And, and I think one, one huge key to that for me is just that open line of communication. And, and you've mentioned that several different times. What, what can we do? And, and you see it from you and maybe you've evolved in how you communicate with, with players. But uh, the older that I get, the more that I'm like, the more that I am open with them, I have, there's an open line of communication. It's not necessarily like coaches way up here and you're way down here. You need to listen to what I have to say. So how, how do we as coaches who are listening and, and again, our listeners are, are wanting to get better. Like that's why they're here. How can we become better communicators uh, within our program, within our staff? And more importantly, just how do we better communicate with the players? Because the older we get, the more that they still, they all say the same age, right? And so there's going to be a gap there. Uh, so how, how have you found over your, you know, however long you've been coaching to be able to, to still stay uh, in, in a really good line of effective communication with them? Well, I always say you can either lead from your feet or lead from your seat. And meaning that you, you alluded to that. If I lead from the seat, then all I do is I sit up in the office. I mandate a bunch of things out of the office and go get it done and never interact with my players. But if I lead from okay. my seat or if I lead from my feet, then it could be as simple as, you know, like our facility at Phoenix Municipal Stadium, you know, guys come in, they'll make, you know, food or whatever, or we have lunch or pregame meal or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I can either go and grab my pregame meal and go sit in my office by myself with my coaching staff, or I have a choice. I could go grab my plate of food and go sit down and sit at a table with my players and talk sure. about everything, you know, but, and it, to me, it's always been as simple. People think that's more complex than it really is. I used to play uh, flag football every fall with, with my players on my team. And we would enter the, you know, intramural tournaments and do that stuff until I found out that it was an NCA violation. The NCA ruled that it was a violation. They called it accountable related activity. But anyway, you know, I would do that for a reason because I wanted to see, I wanted my players to see me more as than, than a baseball coach. We will do, you know, we would do um, a really cool thing we do. We do hoedowns and, and we'll do uh, country line dancing, square dancing with the players, their dates, our families, kids, everything. So again, they can see you as someone more than, just the coach. So I think the more coaches can do things outside of the normal practice setting mm-hmm. where they can see you as a husband, a father, uh, you know, just a normal guy, you know, those now understanding there's a lot clear lines of delineation between player and coach. But I like to, I like to, to minimize those when they need to be minimized because then when you ask them, you know, to do something that maybe is out of their comfort zone or they've got an issue that, they want to bring to you, they're not going to feel afraid or untrusting or whatever, because they're going to know you. Sure. And, and so I think the more time that coaches can invest, can invest in players off the field or away from the field, the more it's going to serve them on the field. I like that. And, and just thinking that uh, hopefully, and I think this that you would agree with this, but you're setting the example of what you want to see. So you're walking the walk, you're talking the talk, and and you're giving them. And and some of some of your players may not have seen that father figure that that you're 
that you are now put in place for, and you're trying to help them to understand, you know, what, what are a dad, father, man looks like. Well, and I'll give you this, this kind of struck me as odd. I've always been that way. I remember when I took my first coaching job, I, I mean, we're literally out picking weeds on the field, but anyway, we, we had some rain here um, for prior to the season and we're sort of trying to get the field ready. Well, I mean, I'm not, I've never known anything differently. So I'm out there. I mean, I'm walking through the water that's this deep and digging holes and mixing up with the grounds crew and rolling the tarp with the players and all those things. And it, it just struck me as odd because I'm the small town dude from Kenton, Indiana, who's done that stuff my entire life. But how many people, even our grounds guy who'd been in a big, he said, man, I, I, just, I really appreciate you. I, I can't believe you're out there working. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying it's like stuff like that, right. that if you do, you know, then that player who may think they're too good to do the tarp, or whatever, like, hey man, Skip's out there doing it. I need to do that. Yeah. You know, so right. it's just, I just think rolling your sleeves up and getting there and interacting with your players in as many situations as you can. Don't think you got to, you know, lead from the ivory tower. Right. So, and that's not fake. That's just, that's you. Like, I, and I, I love that. So with, uh, with, with that, we're, <laughs> we're unfortunately going to have the players that we just, for, for one reason or another, decide to, uh, you know, be teenagers and maybe we, we can't, haven't gotten that, bu- that buy-in or they do some things that really make you scratch your head. And then we have to have those hard conversations. And like you said, you're, you're a truth teller, which, I, man, I, I think that truly comes out of love whenever you can tell somebody what the truth is. But what does that conversation look like whenever you, you can't get the behavior that you want? Does that, does that make sense? Like we want to, sometimes we have to change someone's behavior and we have to redirect them in a way uh, that most benefits the program or even their self. And so what does a conversation like that look like? Well, it starts with, as you said, it starts with honesty and the truth and don't, and I'm going to, I'm going to proceed all of this with don't think that sometimes you don't come into your career where you come to a crossroad where you've done everything you can. And this person just doesn't want to help themselves. I think in, we're human beings, you know, and players are no different. We're human beings and we've all been there. We've all, you know, we've all made mistakes and are going to continue to make mistakes. But one of the things that I like to talk about with players is like, look, one, we want to hear about it first, you know, so that's admitting the mistake that you've made. But that first mistake is not going to define you. So it's like, what's, so you've already made a bad decision. Okay, we can deal with that. I don't care what it is. We can deal with that. But the one that we have the most trouble with is, is, is if we follow that bad decision up with another bad decision. Sure. So that's the one that we focus on mostly is, okay, a guy screws up, he does something, or his behavior's not right or whatever. We'll, you know, we'll have that, hey, man, let's, let's sit down, let's talk about this, and let's, let's address the issue. Okay, we get it out on the table. Now, how do you respond to that? Because I always say, man, there's actions and there's consequences, and who controls that? Sure. You know, you can control that. And we're all going to screw up. So I tried to, I've had the most uh, effective ability, I think, to crack that, to crack that nut. If, if I somehow create like, Hey man, I've been in your shoes or let me tell you what I did, mm-hmm. you know, that, so when they know that it's not just them or you're trying to come down on them because you're in this position of authority, but you're actually trying to help right. them. I think that gives you the best ability to correct that behavior, whatever it is. Humility, man. I mean, that's like, that's what I try to do is just like, Hey, I, I've been there, you know, and learn so, from my mistakes. Uh, right. I mean, don't, you know, 
easier said than done. I mean, I think it's, sure. I think it's a way, I think there's, you know, there's a way to do it. There's a way not to do it. Hey man, you know, mm-hmm. well, what, what we say all the time, like I just think education is power too. So like, let's just say like the, there's a lot of young, the young coaches on the line, I guess, watching mm-hmm. this is, you know, one of the things that we've done is we've tried to use science too. And we all sit and say, Hey, uh, you shouldn't go drinking or you shouldn't go do these things because it's bad for you to do. I mean, that's been kind of the message throughout your entire career. Well, one of the things that we've done is we brought in people to actually show our athletes what your brain looks like sleep deprived or after alcohol or whatever, so that it's not just some old gray, no hair dude telling you don't do this because it's bad for you. Mm-hmm. Hey man, let's show you what it looks like. Let's show you the benefits of doing it. Let's physically show you so that maybe when you're in those situations, you cognitively make a better decision for you. Not because I'm not telling it because I'm telling you not to do it. You know it. You're not making that decision because you know it's not the best thing for you. I think the more we can do that as coaches, the better too. Sure. Sure. Uh, on a completely separate note, you, you mentioned you like playing flag football and some different stuff and, and again, that, that goes back to you being you, you being real and you getting to want to know your players. But I love just anything, any competitions that, that you've got that we can add. I know Cash told me that you guys tried to do like one a week that didn't have anything to do with baseball. So we can start there. But, it, but then also, I know that we're always trying to add competitions in, within the practice setting with baseball stuff, too. So either one of those. But I, I'm sure I'm really excited to dig into this one with you. Well, I mean, I think uh, the message that we try to instill in our guy, I don't care what you're doing, whether it's, you know, ping pong table that's in the locker room, there's, there's usually going to be a winner or loser. Um, I've probably, and, and this is one of the mistakes, I'll, 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 I'll admit this on air. This is one of the mistakes I think that I've, that I've made even coming here because I thought I needed to treat guys differently, you know, and, um, and meaning that, you know, when I was at Miami and Indiana, maybe not until late in Indiana, that we weren't getting this elite recruit. And I know I'm going to hear from all the Indiana guys or Miami guys. What are you talking about? We weren't, but, um, <laughs> but like we would do a lot of like intense competition stuff of one-on-one um, battles, if you will, whether it be a physical game of one-on-one basketball. And the purpose wasn't, it wasn't about the basketball. It was about, getting yourself and, and I remember one situation vividly we're at assembly hall and we, we had it divided by class so each class could pick their representative for the one-on-one and and uh and the older guys kind of knew what was coming because it was like hey man it's like you got to win you're going to figure out and, and the young freshman takes the ball the upperclassman and it might even have been early if I, <laughs> if I remember correctly but I mean physically getting after it with the guy and the one guy's like you're gonna call a foul i said there's no mm-hmm. fouls in this what are you talking about <laughs> you know and so then the the idea was you get the ball in the basket and i think when people when you can show them and demonstrate or create ways to get them out of their comfort zone than normal because what do you do when you play one-on-one basketball you do your thing you you, you call the foul well not in this right. and the whole point was to say figure it out you know, no one was trying to get anybody hurt, and I would step in if we needed to because there was some physical stuff that would happen in that. But the message was well taken was, hey, man, you know, I may, I may need to get out of my comfort zone to get this thing done. And so we would do that through those physical competitions. And one of the best things we ever did, and we actually had to 
when they made the hour restrictions was we had exercises where we would, um, I brought in uh, my buddy who taught at the army ROTC, but he has pinnacle leadership where we'd get guys outside their comfort zone through sleep deprivation and other things and do physical tasks. Um, so just being creative. And I think coaches can kind of come up with things on their own. You don't want guys to get hurt, but you also want them to be pushed a little bit too. Sure. Sure. Good answer. I like that. Uh, uh, we'll dig into some sidebar questions in just a second, but I, I've got one more for you. Uh, and then looking through these, I, I think that, uh, there's some really good ones in there, but, uh, if you had to boil it down to something that you guys did in practice, because um, I'm always trying to like steal practical ideas. And so if you went to practice tomorrow and you, you, you know, I, I wish we could, uh, but if you went to practice tomorrow and said, Hey guys, we're doing this today, they would, you knew, you know, they would love it. Now it could be something that, that could be at like the end of practice or something that just, you know, that, that it's a winner. Like what's one drill, what's one theme or what's, what's one thing that you guys do in practice that we can steal from you that if we used it tomorrow, our players would love it. Well, I don't know when was early on. Cause he might've stolen my thunder on this one. We kind of created <laughs> uh they talk about the spider drill. I don't remember it, but give, okay. give it to so us. I love out, it. So, so it was an outfield drill. And what we were noticing was, and we kind of cre- came by accident. I don't know about you, but a lot of my, things come in the middle of the night i wake up and write it down but anyway, thoughts so, yes so we were having uh we were having trouble like determining a who the best guy was in terms of range getting the balls and things like that so we came up with this and we came with this thing called the spider drill so i'm in, i'm at night i wake up i'm like okay how can we simulate knowing who can get to a certain ball but they can't cheat or whatever so the drill looks like this you put a cone in center field you've got your outfielders out there we put a um, – it's actually our step and repeat for our uh, our, uh, our press conferences, but you can put a screen with a tarp over it about the pitcher's mound. Now, I understand the finances are different. Coaches are going to be like, well, we can't afford to do that. But I'm going to tell you the drill that our guys like, whether you can afford machines or not. But we have – so we have three hack attacks at the plate. Okay, so the outfielder at the cone can't see which hack attack is being fed. So – Guy is standing in center field. He's looking towards the plate. All he sees is a ball come up from that blocked, the, the tarp that's basically at the pitcher's mound. But what we could assess from that was because you can control where the ball was going to go, so it was pretty consistent each time. They didn't know which direction, so they couldn't cheat and anticipate stuff. But So they had to react to that ball. So we learned two things. One, we learned who got the quickest reaction time and who was getting to the ball. They, and so at the end of the day, we literally just put that drill in this year. Mm-hmm. Guy says the best drill, the most favorite drill they've ever done <laughs> since they've been at Arizona State because, awesome. one, you're tired as heck getting after it, but it's as game-like as you can on a fly ball. It really is. And mm-hmm. so I, I know that's probably a corny drill, but that's it's uh, the, sp- the spider drill. Spider so, drill. I like that. Yeah. You know, whenever you said uh, – you know, I, I woke up in the middle of the night with this drill. Every single one of these guys with their video on was like, yep, I've been there, like 100%. Oh, I, I know what that oh, feels yeah. like. Oh, yeah. That's funny. Well, you just see I didn't know how it was going to look. We, oh, yeah, I didn't know how it was going to look, but we laid it out, and Mike, he made some adjustments to it, but it was, it was actually fun. So anytime they see that on the practice schedule, they're like, yeah. Yeah, spider so, drill. I like that. Consider that stolen by yeah. about uh, 50 people right now. Uh, but, but let's go ahead and get to some questions in the sidebar. I know I want to be conscious of your time. Uh, but let's see. Um, I got nothing but time and all this. Oh, nice. Heck yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Cody wanted to know, uh, Cody Atkinson, who, who I get to work for, a fantastic hitting coordinator. Um, just throwing that out there. But anyways, uh, he has, has there been a difference in successful teams that you've coached or is it, or is it truly the same ingredient to success with each group that's successful? Read that one more time. I want to get the essence of that question. Sure. Has there been uh, differences in success in successful teams that you've coached or is it the same ingredient to success with each group? So uh, for, for me, I'm, I'm taking that as, uh, and maybe you, you have a different interpretation, but uh, is there a difference between really successful teams and teams that aren't or, or what well, is I the think, difference that you've seen? Well, I think it, to me, it's your, this is just me, you know, what's your definition of success? I, and I, and I, and, and I'm sure there's coaches out there and I don't want to like go into great detail on this, but I, I've had a team teams. I've had teams in the past where we've had great success on the field, but it was really, really hollow for me, you know? And I remember one time I make a statement. I'm like, Hey man, if we win this championship, I, I said, I don't need, I'm not going to be standing there doing this and the team, you know, because it didn't right. feel good in the way that we were doing it. And, you know, and that can be, you know, many different things, but then there are other teams that maybe didn't capture the championship, but it was a great group of guys to be around. So for me, right. the success is multifaceted. It's, yeah. It's just stuff. Cause think about this. I mean, do we really remember who hit what or who pitched what or what the, I mean, maybe some guys do. I don't. What I remember most about a team is man, that team was really, really fun to be around. I think back mm -hmm. to certainly this team I had this year, People are like, oh, what a bummer. You know, you guys aren't going to be able to play it out. You guys were strapped for Omaha. Honestly, yeah, I agree with that. But the part I'm going to miss most and that I regret not having is to get to spend 56 games with that group of guys in buses, in hotels, in airplanes, and in the dugout. That, to me, is the success that, that I remember. So, oh, I love that. And, you know, I, I had this, this question asked early in my career of would you rather have – turds that are really good baseball players or really good kids that uh, weren't that great at baseball. And, and earlier in my career, I was like, man, I'm all about like, I want rings. I, I want all this stuff. And the more in my career I get around those turds, I'm like, they, they, you know, they ruin, they can ruin your day for sure. And, well, yeah. And, and it's, it's a blend. I mean, you know, you're not going to have, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, let's be real, man. You, you know, you're not going to have angels every single time either. I mean, and part of our challenge as coaches is, is molding young men. I mean, that's what we do. But that's what I said back to that. You're going to come at some point. I mean, I think we all like challenges. We all like, we got into this because we want to develop people. So if we're out there getting the, you know, choir boy the whole time, the four point student or whatever, I don't think that's necessarily, uh, and not nothing against that, but I don't think that's necessarily an ingredient and an automatic success either. I think it's a blend and how you bring all of those unique, different personalities together. That is success to me. That is success to me. Oh, that's great. Rick mentioned, uh, you mentioned having to change a little bit about the culture at ASU and, and how that wasn't easy. What were some different things that you did to get everyone on the same page and pushing in the right direction? I just think it's consistency and how you deal with things. You know, there, there's all those sayings about, you know, you are what you tolerate all of those things, but I think it's laying clear expectations and, uh, and then honestly having the guts to follow through with those expectations and, you know, and that's been, you know, and I don't want, it's, it's, it's interesting because I've done 
you know, those things throughout my career at various stops. I think the difference in being in a place like Arizona State, um, it's more everything's under the microscope, you know. So, for example, you know, you may make a decision on disciplining a guy and holding them out for a weekend because it's the best thing for the team and the culture and everything moving forward. And, um, you know, going back to my father-in-law again, he said, you know, he said, it doesn't matter about the win or the loss because if you play that person who doesn't deserve to play, you're probably going to lose twice. You're probably going to lose the game and you're going to lose your team. So, you know, but you make those decisions and you get a loss in Arizona State when maybe you could have won. I mean, that loss is perceived publicly a little bit differently than in Miami of Ohio or somewhere else like that. And where I've been, I'm picking out Miami for that's where I've coached. Sure. So it's that, but having the guts and the conviction, I think as a coach to do what you know is right, regardless of whether it impacts that win or not, because my father was right. You're probably going to lose twice. And I know you're at least going to lose once. You're going to lose your team. So. Which causes you know, more losses down the road, down the road, down the road. Yep. For sure. For sure. All right. Another question. Let me see. Um, how often do you refer to your ecosystem of winning plan? Is it, is it something that you do once a year, like once a month or, or yeah. how do you, so, how do you go about that? Well, Matthew, so we'll go ahead. Ashley. I was going to say, Matthew, if you've got more context on that, who you asked, uh, shoot it in the chat. Uh, if that wasn't answer or if that wasn't asked exactly how you wanted it, but yeah. So going back to that, so we'll, I'll, I'll, before the year starts, I mean, I'll literally, I wish I had it to show you. Um, all right. I'm back. I thought I, I thought I had it here. I'm at home. I've got it in the office, but what I wanted to shoot, but I literally go around. I apologize. I, don't have it. No, go ahead. I go around. So at the beginning of the year, like all of those different you know, organizations, I will literally go around and schedule a meeting or a phone call with them to go over that with them. Now, understand and the staff piece of that is so for example ben greenspan you know my recruiting coordinator ben i need you to you know know every name west of the mississippi i need you to do this i need you to that we're going to be addressing those things honestly through our everyday you know interaction because we meet on recruiting all the time mike early i need you to do this as this specific with hitting uh, Jason Kelly, this with pitching. So that stuff will be addressed daily. It depends on, that's why I wish I could show it to you and I'm going to have to send it to you. Uh, but in that ecosystem, the closer you get to the team piece and I, and I lay it out, the more contact that you have to that CEO, the more external. So it could be alumni, it could be whatever you're going to address and deal with those folks, not as frequently. So it depends on the group and the entity within that ecosystem. Um, that you a lay, but I lay it out at the beginning of the year, but how I go back and follow up on that depends on how close they are to the core of what we're doing. Oh, I'm so disappointed. I don't have that right now. No, it's, you should see. So private messages in the chat are like, Hey, can you have him send that to us? Hey, can you, can, can I really see that? I was like, okay, well, we'll see. I'll, I'll ask you off the mic and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. Um, how, how do you, how are you different now than you were 20 years ago hmm. as a coach? Well, I've met my, my players would all say that I've mellowed, sure. uh, you know, and I'll say you were talking about, you know, your son earlier on the thing. Um, I think having raised, you know, certainly kids, 
Um, I remember when I was, I was, I, I was a head coach, division one head coach at age 30. And I am way different, you know, in terms of just how I can t- take a step back or I've chilled a little bit more on that stuff. Uh, but to the core, I think I am, I'm a little bit more patient now. And I think that has with raising kids. And I was probably more early in my career, black and white, where I think everything has context now and that's through life experiences, quite frankly, outside of, of coaching a team. So um, I try to take a step back. The most different I guess is as I don't have an immediate reaction to a situation. Um, and I'll give you an example, you know, cause we have a rule in our program where if you screw up, which people are going to do, you call me, you know, and I think early in my career, if you called me, <laughs> you probably wouldn't want to be on the other end of that phone because my, you know, hey, you know, right, reacted differently. Whereas now it's more of that fatherly, okay, you screwed up. Let's, you know, we're going to get, we're going to, we're going to solve this. We're going to get better. You're going to get better for it. Where that's kind of my initial reaction now. So I'm more patient. I love that. Bradley Goldberg wants to know what the biggest difference between the Big Ten versus the Pac-12. And he says he's also still salty about the 2013 regular season Big Ten championship at OSU. (laughs) Um, I'm not, I'm not salty about it. I kind of like, it. uh, um, the different, well, I mean, I would say maybe, and this is just my personal observation. This is no fact or fiction. I would say the, the, the depth of the pitching in the PAC 12 is a little, uh, a little different, but I've said this numerous times since I've been out here. Cause I've heard it all. Like, hey, you're not mm-hmm. in the big 10 anymore, you know, go back to the, you know, all that stuff. I'm like, Hey, there's good players in the Big Ten. So I think a good baseball player in the Big Ten would be a good baseball player in the Pac-12. The biggest difference is the weather. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but, no, it's, it's you know, and I, I love, I mean, having been a part of it. I'm really proud of coming out of the Big Ten Conference, too. Um, mm-hmm. Just the, you know, how that, how the respect and of the Power Five conferences and how that conference and all the coaches that are still there have done a fantastic job of elevating that conference on a national scale. All right. So the last one that I've got for you, uh, unless there's any more that, that pop up in the chat, but I think I got to everyone's. Uh, what are some of your favorite books and resources? I know, <laughs> I know you mentioned Call of Duty. It's awesome. I love that, that you're staying relevant. And you're like, dude, he's got to get on COD later and all this stuff with your players, I'm yeah. sure. And you're just putting a beat down on them. But what are some different things, uh, like books, people, just clinics, different things that, that you've done over your career uh, that have, have made you better? And if you're just going to give us a couple to make us better, what would you do? Because I think we're all kind of um, searching for those things right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like. I think its name is Todd Brown. The, the speaker, Todd Brown, um, he, he's spoken at the convention a few times. And here's the deal. I'm going to tell you right up front. I'm not real big into that. But, I'm, mm-hmm. but this is why I'm saying it's impactful. So if I tell you this, he's made an impact on me. Like, mm-hmm. I really like that. Is it Bruce Brown or Todd Brown? Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown. He's an old NAIA football coach, I believe. But he has okay. a lot of really, really great concepts of – um, there's this one where he talks about athlete versus non-athlete. There's a segment. I've actually got the DVD of it, but that is one of my favorite things that I've ever used in coaching. And when he defines the term athlete and non-athlete, it'll make sense to everybody on this on this uh, podcast. But I would recommend him big time. There's a book that I read and actually became friends with the author. Um, his his name is Todd Gongler, but he's an old basketball coach. It's called Lead for God's Sake, and it's a very simple 
very almost, and no offense, Todd, almost like an elementary read, but it's a, it's an anecdotal story of a basketball coach, but he goes through this thing and you can apply it now. It's simply in the title, you see the religious piece and everyone has their own views on religion. So I'm not saying anything to that regard because you can take, you can take the religious component out of it if you like, mm-hmm. and you can weave that in. But what I love about that book is it talks about why are we all doing this? Like if we're all doing it to go, as you said, or, you know, to win the championships, to get the rings to do all those things, then you know what? Your, your purpose is probably misplaced a little bit because, but it talks about purpose over passion and passion over purpose, purpose over passion. And um, it's just a really, it's a simple read. I'd recommend that to any, you know, young, co- old coach. Uh, it's sure. a great book. And, and I'm a Netflix guy. I get my inspiration from Netflix. Sure. Um, is that the one, that's the one with the janitor right? The basketball yeah. coach and the janitor. Joe. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. 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 I need, I need to get yeah. back into that one. Uh, yeah. I just saw one when you recruit players, do you talk to their high school coaches? Um, he has had a lot of guys that play at the college level and never really talked to any of their college coaches beforehand. It's interesting. Um, it, it, it depends. I mean, it just depends on the situation. Some we do because it goes back to the, you're going to, you're going to try to determine the relationship and I don't, the on, not honesty of the, the, the validity of the information for us. So if I know a college or a high school coach and I know who he is, what he stands for, whatever, I'm probably more apt to talk to that person about the player. If I don't know him, me personally, probably not as because I don't know if they're just saying good things about this kid because he plays for them or whatever. So I think it really depends on the situation. And you know, and while I'm talking about that, I know that's a hot button for mm-hmm. coaches because I've, I've kind of shared that, and, and, and maybe rightly so, but sometimes the high school coaches get really, really defensive on that. Well, we're the ones that, you know, and I get it. I, I, sure. I understand that. But I think it's just more relationship, and I would say don't take offense to that. Um, it's not that they think you're any less important. I think it probably just more centers around the fact they don't, you know, a college coach doesn't know you, you know, so. Okay. Um, yeah cool I honestly I uh, have heard both sides of it and that's the first time I'd heard from a really from a college coach's perspective but that also makes sense as well because you know you've got a, a bunch of different players you're trying to recruit how has recruiting changed for you now like what what is what is that going to look like in the near future whenever you can't go this summer to watch a bunch of players play good question like we're all trying <laughs> to figure that out I mean uh, um, I, you know, I think the virtual technology piece is going to be something that is going to have to be utilized more. I've been saying it all along. I think the group of, of kids that get, you know, impacted the most with this would be uh, the, the high school kids, particularly high school seniors, you know, mm-hmm. and now if they, if they extend this recruiting ban out even longer then now you're talking about probably the high school juniors, the current juniors are going to get impacted a lot. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly don't know. You know, we're, we're fortunate enough here because we can rely on our network. You know, we've had mm-hmm. an extensive, you know, network. I've got a staff that's very experienced. So we can, you know, probably fare, fare better, better than most programs because we know a lot of people and trust, just like what you were saying, evaluations of people, even if we can't see them as much as possible. So it's going to be challenging to say the least. Okay. Uh, had another one come in if, if you've got a little more time. Is that okay? I got Look, I got my coffee. I got nothing to talk. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, same thing. Cheers. Coffee with Coach. Uh, having been a two-way player and coaching a lot of different positions, 
where do you find yourself specializing from a coaching standpoint? Uh, or like, what are your strengths? So he's, he's talking about, it could be culture, talent evaluation, uh, or could be technical skill sets uh, from the team. So like, if you're going to boil down what you do really well, like you're like, Hey guys, I got this. Don't touch it. Like, this is the stuff that I feel like I'm doing really well. Where would, where would you land on that? Well, I mean, I think what I, I think one of my strongest things goes back to that scout school thing I talked about is I think I can evaluate talent, you know, or potential um, really well. But uh, I mean, infielding, infielding was something, you know, that I, I, I work with our infielders here. I'm really, you know, comfortable and I'm comfortable doing all of them, but I, I like that. I enjoy that. Uh, but I like um, just from an overall coaching standpoint, like I like, you know, that competitive piece mixing my, personality with some, you know, that they know that, Hey man, if I'm around skip, he's competitive, you know, in everything. So I, I think that I, I mean, maybe I, I don't know, they'll tell you, but I think I do that. Okay. Developing a competitive mindset. How about that? I like that. If you're not competitive, you're not going to be really, we're not going to get along real well. <laughs> sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, but I, I, man, I, so let me open up the mic for you. Uh, you've got a, a decent, decent audience um, of coaches and obviously coaches who want to get better. Uh, what would you leave with us? Um, maybe, you know, just different advice on uh, us from, from a career standpoint, or things that you've learned, but what would you like to leave us with uh, before you go? Well, uh, okay. I'll, I'll, can I give you two? Absolutely. I nothing okay. but time. All right. Well, I would say, so I get this question a lot, particularly from the younger coaches that are getting into the profession. And I never thought I'd say it because I still see myself as like an 18 year old. I mean, you know, mentally. So it's funny even mm -hmm. talking about it, but I've seen a lot over the years, a lot of guys that want to get into the profession. I would say um, if I'm you, a you got, you got to get in, depending on what level you want to get in. But it, it, at the college level, it's, it's, a, it's attrition. I get mm -hmm. so many Young coaches say, Skip, I want to be a college coach. What do I need to, you know, what do I need to do? A, get in and then survive, like stay in it. Because most often guys will come to a point where they're like, man, I've, I got to keep grinding this out for little pay, blah, blah, blah. Or I got to go get a job. Well, I've seen a lot of guys, they, they take that other fork in the road, which is okay. I understand that. But if you want to last in this, um, you know, you just, you got to get in and grind it out. And on that grinder out subject, I remember having a young coach one time and um, we, you know, and I made a change at the end and I made the change because of this, because he said to me, and I, mean, I won't say the, the actual word, but he said, you know, you always have me do the, you know, SH jobs. Sure. And, you know, and in my mind, as I am, I'm like, I don't, I didn't know there was such a thing in baseball, you know, a, shit job like there I never knew there was such a thing in baseball because every job we do man there's a purpose to it so like as a head coach I've told you I've I've picked weeds off of a field I have you know physically done stuff so like you got to have a mindset that and this this is what it's a young coach or anything no job is beneath you I mean that that to me because that shows the player piece um, that you want and then the second piece I would say and it kind of goes to what the question was I can't remember the the person who asked it, but you know, like what, I mean, I, you know, what is, what is your definition of success? 
Sure. You know, I mean, if you're successful, you're getting into this just to win, you know, and I understand all that stuff's going to, we all want to win, but like, I'd still go back to, you know, I just was on a call, uh, one of these zoom things the other day with all my college teammates and, you know, and the lasting relationships and it's still, and you know, it's like you, you pick up, like you've never missed a day to me. That's mm-hmm. what it's about when you'll get that letter from somebody, you know, 20 years later, a guy that maybe even you kicked off the team or whatever that said, Hey man, now I get it. I understand what you were trying to do. I own a business myself. You know, I really appreciate blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's that type of stuff. So I would, you know, I would say if, if you can really set your mind to getting into it for those reasons, all of that stuff, the winning and all of that stuff will come. Um, it will come back to my business plan. My whole business plan is, is said with this idea of we want to be in the conversation for national championship. Now, notice I didn't say we want to win a national championship. I think that goes without saying, but if you're, if you're in a conversation for a national championship, it tells me you're doing a lot of things right on a daily basis to put yourself in position to win a national championship. So if you just follow that stuff and you do it the right way, you, you know, I've referenced my father, I'm going to do it again. There's no such thing as a tough decision. Mm-hmm. So you get to a point where you had a player, we talked about discipline where you got to make that so-called tough decision. Well, it's really not a tough decision because if you've been clear in your expectations, your accountability, the decision's made and you didn't make it, you know? Sure. So if you, if you have the conviction to do that, you're in it for the right reasons, which is developing young men that happen to be really good baseball players, then you know what? You're going to have a successful career in coaching period. I'll take that as a drop the mic moment. Um, and um, so writing down future, future guest ideas, coach Smith's father-in-law, um, because, because <laughs> <laughs> he is full of wisdom, but guys, uh, I appreciate you all coming on Tracy. I, I appreciate your time. Um, I really have enjoyed it. I've loved getting to hear other people's questions and getting to getting to ask you just some of the, some of mine selfishly of stuff that I'm trying to grow in and uh, appreciate getting to see some awesome weather since it, like I told you, it's going to rain like three inches here today and it's been thundering, uh, this entire time. But uh, again, thank you guys for joining us, Tracy. Thanks for coming on and I appreciate your time. And I would say if any of your listeners or whomever, they want to hit us up and come to a game, let us know. We'll, <clears throat> we'll work it out. Cool. Well, thank we'll you guys again. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.